In the case of Brazil, we were down there making a documentary film. Partly for the government, but mostly, mostly for a Hollywood studio. This was at the time of the good neighbor policy. And it was my task to make a large technicolor documentary on the subject of the carnival. And so we took up the whole question of samba and the samba orchestra. And when I'd nearly finished the film, it occurred to me that the origins of samba lay in voodoo ceremonies, particularly in Shangu, which are practiced up in uh, the favelas, those strange native settlements on the mountains, which are right in the midst of the city of Rio. And so I arranged with a good deal of difficulty to film a voodoo ceremony. And uh, we had protracted conversations with the head of the group. And uh, an advance payment was arranged for. He came to my office in Rio to discuss it. And it was my unhappy lot to have to tell him that the filming was off because I had just received word from Hollywood that the president of the film studio had been rather abruptly removed. A new president was in his place and the entire project was off. There was no more money to spend on voodoo ceremonies. And the witch doctor assured me that this was deeply offensive and uh, that he and his group took it very badly. And I said, I was most sorry about it myself. I did want to finish the film and I did hope he understood. Ah, but he said, we have spent money. We have bought entirely new costumes. And I said, well, I'm awfully sorry, but there just isn't any money from Hollywood to pay you. And I, I don't know how I can explain to this new administration that the voodoo ceremony must continue, certainly not in the time already agreed on. And I was called away to the telephone again, left the doctor in my office, had a long conversation on the phone, begging and pleading to be allowed to finish this picture, which we rather liked. The material was very interesting, and I thought it would be a good thing to to finish since so much effort had gone into it. And I was pleading my cause for some time, praying that we would be able to. And I came back to the office and found that the doctor had gone, having been told that the deal was completely off. And that on my desk, in a script of the film, was a long steel needle. It had been driven entirely through the script. To the needle was attached a length of red wool. This was the mark of the voodoo. The end of that story is that it was the end of the film. We were never allowed to finish it. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 131. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we spotlight Orson Welles' time as The Shadow in 1937-38. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme is Peter Tchaikovsky's Piano Concerto No. 1 in B-flat minor. It's a beautiful piece used by Orson Welles in many radio productions.
Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash group slash the Wallbreakers. And Burning Gotham, the new historical fiction audio drama set in 1835 New York City, is very much on its way. Go to burninggotham.com for teasers and more information. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. Alec Wolcott got so angry with me once at a party he introduced me because he was the one who kind of started me again in show business and he presented me as somebody at a party that should be interesting. And there I was, 19 years old, there wasn't anything interesting to say about me. I hadn't done anything in America. He says, well, Orson was born in Peking. And I said, no. And a look of hatred came over Alex's face when I had told him it was Kenosha, Wisconsin. Instead of speaking, because it was the only interesting thing he could think of to say. <laughs> in the spring of 1935, 19-year-old Orson Welles was living in New York, appearing on stage in Catherine Cornell's stock company, and working on CBS's American School of the Air and The March of Time. Today has published the most comprehensive treatise on Americanisms to date, the book whose previous editions were read in England, translated into German. H.L. Mencken's 769 page, The American Language. On the future of the American language, says Mr. Mencken. The influence of 125 million people, practically all headed in one direction, is too great to be resisted by the minority in England wherever the king's English comes into competition with the president's American, American tends to prevail. The international language of the future may look like English, but it will sound like American. The next year, Wells was on the debut episode of CBS's Columbia Workshop. The program's creator, Irving Reese, recognized Orson's talent. While Wells studied the creative risks, the workshop took. He began to assemble his Mercury Theater troupe, just as FDR launched the Federal Theater Project. John Houseman invited Wells to be part of an African-American theater unit in Harlem. Their first co-production was an adaptation of Shakespeare's Macbeth. Wells changed the setting to a mythical island. Voodoo took the place of Scottish witchcraft. The play opened on April 14, 1936 at the Lafayette Theater. It received incredible reviews. Untimely rip! How can't it be the tongue that tells me so? And be these juggling fiends no more believe. Hell King! Behold! West and the usurper's cursed head! The time is free! All hail Malcolm! Peace! The charms wound up!
By that autumn, Wells was traveling between Chicago and New York, appearing on Mutual Broadcasting's Wonder Show and on the Columbia Workshop. The great period of radio was from the time when I very fortuitously and didn't know this at the time, obviously happened to fall into New York from that to the war. From 1937, 38 really, through the war. It was mm -hmm. only seven years. Mm -hmm. The golden age of radio. At this time, we were trying to find out how to do it. Mm -hmm. we, were, we were learning skills. We were sharpening and honing our abilities. If you saw, good heavens, predating the War of the Worlds by a, a year, when Irving Reese did The Fall of a City in 37, spring of 37, The Fall of a City by Archibald McLeish, a first play with one of America's outstanding poets, a man who was so impressed by the medium of radio that he submitted to Irving Reese in the Columbia Workshop a verse play for radio. And who directed that? Irving Reese with all of the directorial staff of CBS assisting him. Yeah, that was a mammoth Earl production. Earl McGill, Brewster Morgan, myself, Bill Spear, all assisting. Orson Welles' as narrator, Burgess Meredith, the chief orator. Names that we conjure with now were just kids then. Yeah, Orson Welles was probably about 22, 23, 23 at the time. Uh, 20, uh, 2 and 37, 23 at the time of the other show. And then you uh, use a big mammoth studio or you rented a, a National Guard Hall or something to get special uh, the 7th effects. 7th Regiment Armory on Park Avenue. Yeah. So that was uh, remote. Uh, it was done live, the whole show. Yeah, it was done live, but it was remote from the armory. And that was to get what, the effect of the crowd or something? Uh, what Irving wanted to get was an outdoor perspective, dead air, outdoor, no reverb. He put his cast in this vast armory. Now, I, my responsibility was crowd direction. We had a crowd of 150 people. The crowd was a character in the play as the Greeks wrote for the chorus. Mm -hmm. They had no words, but they had reactions. And I was the cheerleader for the crowd. <laughs> but to limit that, to control a small orchestra, but with very piercing primitive instruments, I mean, with that woodwinds and tambours and so on, to control that, to control the narrator, Wells worked in an isolation booth, which were quite new in those days. All of this to give an impression of great space without reverberation, because Irving was a genius at this kind of conception. Unheard of in those days, unheard of today. What television producer gives a damn about sound? They pump all this $250,000 production through a four-inch speaker. On Sunday, April 11, 1937, as producer-director William N. Robeson just noted, the workshop broadcast a verse play written especially for radio by Archibald MacLeish. It was called The Fall of the City. It was an allegory on the rise of fascism. The broadcast took place at the massive 7th Regiment Armory on 67th Street and Park Avenue in New York. Reese used over 150 extras and entrusted Wells to be the narrator. To get proper sonic differentiation, they built radio's first narration booth. We are here on the central plaza. We are well off to the eastward edge. There's a kind of terrace over the crowd here. It is precisely four minutes to twelve. The crowd is enormous. There might be ten thousand. There might be more. The whole square is faces. Opposite over the roofs of the mountains. It is quite clear. There are birds circling. We think they are kites by the look. They're very high. The tomb is off to the right somewhere. We can't see for the great crowd. Close to us here are the cabinet ministers. They stand on a raised platform with awnings. The farmers' wives are squatting on the stones. Their children have fallen asleep on their shoulders. The heat is harsh. The light dazzles like metal. It dazes the air as the clang of a gong does. It is one minute to twelve now. There is still no sign. 
They are still waiting. No one doubts that she will come. No one doubts that she will speak, too. Three times she has not spoken. Now it is twelve. Now they are rising. Now the whole plaza is rising. Fathers are lifting their small children. The plume fans on the platform are motionless. There's no sound but the shuffle of shoe leather. Now even the shoes are still... We can hear the hawks. It is as quiet as that now. It is strange to see such throngs so silent. Nothing yet. Nothing has happened. Wait. There's a stir here to the right of us. They're turning their heads. The crowd turns. The cabinet ministers lean from their balcony. There's no sound, only the turning. First the waters rose with no wind. Listen. That is she. She's speaking. Then the stones of the temple kindled without flame or tinder of maize leaves. They see her beyond us. The crowd sees her. Then there were cries in the night haze, words in a once-heard tongue, the air rustling above us as at dawn with herons. Now it is I who must bring fear, I who am four days dead, the tears still unshed for me, all of them. I for whom a child still calls at nightfall. Death is young in me to fear. My dress is kept still in the press in my bedchamber. No one has broken the dish of the dead woman. Nevertheless, I must speak painfully. I am to stand here in the sun and speak. The city of masterless men will take a master. There will be shouting men, blood after. <laughs> do not ask what it means. I do not know. Only sorrow and no hope for it. She is gone. No, they are still looking. It is hard to return from the time past. I have come in the dream we must learn to dream where the crumbling of time like the ash from a burnt string has stopped for me. For you, the thread still burns. You take the feathery ash upon your fingers. You bring yourselves from the time past as it pleases you. It is hard to return to the old nearness. Harder to go again. She is gone. We know because the crowd is closing. All we can see is the crowd closing. We hear the releasing of held breath, the weight shifting, the lifting of shoe leather. The stillness is broken as surface of water is broken, the sound circling from in outward. Small wonder they feel fear. Before the murders of the famous kings, before imperial cities burned and fell, the dead were said to show themselves and speak. When dead men came, disaster came. Presentiments that let the living on their beds sleep on woke dead men out of death and gave them voices. Masterless men! When shall it be? Masterless men will take a master. What has she said to us? When shall it be? The Fall of the City was selected by the New York Times as one of the outstanding broadcasts of 1937. Time Magazine noted that it proved to listeners radio was science's gift to poetry and poetic drama. 
the fall of the city made Orson Welles a star. Mutual Broadcasting was about to give him the opportunity of a lifetime. I was a, an editor up at McFadden's. I edited True Strange Stories. That was, that was how I was getting into the magazine business. And um, that was why Blackwell wanted me to write The Shadow, because he knew that I'd edited a weird magazine with True Strange Stories, and that I was also a newspaper writer and could write fast, and he says, go ahead and write something in this vein. In 1930, publisher Street and Smith decided to try radio with hopes of boosting pulp sales. Each week a drama would be adapted from an upcoming issue of Detective Story magazine. They added a mysterious host called The Shadow and left the link to the magazine somewhat tenuous. The show premiered over CBS on July 31, 1930. Ken Roberts soon became the announcer. I had come to CBS as a very, very young man in early 1931. I announced many different kinds of programs, of course, but one day fortune smiled upon me and I was asked to come on to a program which had, was fairly new at that time and had been on the air, I believe, a year or maybe less, a program called The Shadow. I was not the first announcer, but I did come on to the program in 1931, at which time The uh, Shadow was nothing like what it was in later years when it featured Lamont Cranston. When I came onto the show, The Shadow was a series of dramatic crime programs solved by different detectives every week. The role of The Shadow on that program was to introduce it and to act as something of a narrator. And once he had done his opening line, he was practically finished on the program until the very end of the show when he came back with the weed of crime bears bitter fruit, crime does not pay, the shadow knows. What went on in between his two appearances on the program, of course, was a, as I said before, a crime program or a pro detective story, things of that sort. And uh, the man who read the lines that I referred to before, concluding with the shadow knows, was a gentleman by the name of Jimmy LaCurta. It wasn't long before people were asking for a shadow magazine. Walter Gibson became its chief writer. Our idea was to make something that sold. And uh, we, we liked this particular thing. Blackwell laid it out very well to me. He said, we, you give them these things in the magazine and find out what they like. And he said, you, they like meat and they like potatoes and they like a couple of other things. And you start giving them these. Well, pretty soon you say, hey, these people... We better give them a bit more of a variety. Let's give them some carrots and some spinach. And you come up with these wonderful things. And he said, what do you find out? You find out that they like potatoes. For God's sake, give them potatoes. That's <laughs> now, the old school stayed with that. But what, what my contribution to it, to which, which Nanovic was responsible to a marked degree because he went along with me and therefore would even come up with suggestions. Ours was to draw away from that. And uh, 
not just make them a stereotype, but we did realize that a lot of the readers were stereotyped. The readers were expecting a certain similarity. So I kept thinking like the shadow sank them, but I built, I built in these things and began adding to them. So these new things, and they liked it. And they, I don't think they'd ever done anything like that before. Meanwhile on the air, the host became Frank Reddick. Jimmy left for uh, another job of some sort or perhaps another assignment. In any case, he did leave the show and he was replaced by a gentleman who played the part for three to five years after that, Frank Reddick. And Frank, of course, was one of the best actors in radio. He had appeared on almost all the shows that were on the air at that time. And uh, he took on the assignment In the fall of 1931, Detective Story Hour became the Blue Coal Radio Review. The program was very successful and remained in that format for, oh, till I think it was 1935 or so, during which time it grew from being a half-hour program to a full-hour program, which was called the Blue Coal Radio Review. The Blue Coal Radio Review was so-called because our sponsor was Blue Coal. The uh, director, the producer of the program, was a marvelous man who all the actors in radio dearly loved, Bill Sweets. Bill was his name. In addition to producing the program, of course, he also directed the actual shadow sequences himself. The conductor of the orchestra was George Earle, and we would have a half hour of music and then a half hour of the shadow, and that constituted the Blue Coal Radio Review. The shadow character proved so popular. Beginning on Thursday, October 1st, 1931 at 9.30 p.m., he also narrated Street and Smith's Love Story Hour. They were shifting to Love Story magazine, and they kept the shadow as an announcer on Love Story. I don't know whether anybody's kept those scripts, but for 40 weeks, there were 40 weeks of love, and the shadow was the announcer because Ralston, as the good business manager, says, well, we identify the shadow with Street and Smith, and Love Story is also published by Street and Smith, so keep the announcer, don't get rid of him. In January 1932, the first program using The Shadow as its title debuted on CBS. That fall, it shifted to NBC, and then back to CBS in 1934. The success led to copycats. After The Shadow began to go, uh, all the other competition magazines simply said, oh, write something, let's get up a name, something like The Shadow, let's get in there all doing that. And just as they had thrilling love story, popular love story, the dime love story, everything of that sort. They, they all copied the different things, and, and uh, that was the going of it. So that string all followed in. So you naturally expected them to, to write the same type of stuff. The Phantom was the first, then came the Spider, then came things like Operator 5, Secret Agent X, Dr. Wu Fang. <laughs> the last one of the lot was the Green Lama. People kept asking for the shadow to appear in dramatic portions of the broadcasts. By then, Gibson was writing pulp stories, which featured the shadow as the crime-fighting hero. The series disappeared from CBS's airwaves on March 27, 1935. It wouldn't reappear until the fall of 1937. We began creating a whole new character. Ruth Ruff and Ryan came around, 
and said, can we use the shadow as an announcer because we find it's a good gimmick? And so Ralston said, well, let them use the shadow, providing they say it's owned by Street and Smith and so forth and so on and so on. People like Blue Coal did not want to make more money out of it. In other words, they said, we'll pay for the whole thing. Well, we're through with it with one release, that's all we want. So they gave Street and Smith a chance to take it and later reproduce it on recordings through Michelson. And Street and Smith were making money out of it and getting back the money they'd lost in the other thing. So both Nanovic and I agreed that was good because money was coming into the place and they were keeping up the magazine and uh, he was the editor and I was the writer. But as we went along with that, the readers kept writing in. Why don't you have something about the shadow? What is this silly business about the radio program? The announcers say it was just a gimmick. So we went to Ralston and said we thought that they ought to take the stories from the magazine. In fact, people were saying they should. So we agreed. But the radio people wouldn't have any part of it. Oh, no, it was a great announcer. So Ralston took me to along with him to see different people. And among one of the people we went to see were the Tasty East, who had a thing called the Tasty East Jesters. And we were talking about selling them the, the shadow as a dramatic show. And in that case, John and I would have been deputed to start to put this thing together and talk with their radio outfit and so forth. And uh, they decided to stick with what they had, although they were quite interested. And that was a very interesting thing, because when I went with Ralston, who treated me like I was a member of the firm, he was a wonderful person, they asked him flatly what was the circulation of the shadow. And nobody had ever mentioned it. And he told them 300,000 an issue. Now comes the funny part. Blue Cole said, we'll pay you something for it. It's right, Street and Smith property, you control the thing, so forth. Do what you want with them. Street and Smith says, yes, but we don't want those. We want programs that have to do with the shadow because we're going to use it to promote the shadow magazine. And all you have to do is look at the ads in the shadow magazine and you can see why they were saying that. And finally, Blue Cole said, we'll tell you what we'll do. We'll take it for one next season. Go ahead, have them with shadow stories. Let our script department work on them. Because we've got fellows that have been writing the kind of stuff. We'll run it. If we don't like it, we'll quit. But they said, if it's no good, can we have the shadow back as an announcer? Well, Street and Smith, having nothing to do, said, well, we'd consider that. But let's see how it makes out. It went out, and it was the hit of the year. It was they should have done it three years before, four years before. And all of a sudden, everybody wanted to hear it. And the thing that made it was Lamont Cranston and the characters that they brought in. The, what we, John Nanovic saw to it that enough could be gotten in. And uh, that was its real making. And that's the program they think of now. Dramatically, I don't think there's any medium better. First of all, it did what television doesn't do. It made people listen and pay attention because as we are talking, the great majority of our public may well be wandering about the room or up to something else. <laughs> but well, if it's on a, if radio, they couldn't follow it at all unless they were really following it. That's true, and the imagination really had to take over. That's why a lot of things on television, they can never do as well 
For example, I don't think on a television show they could do a horror or mystery type of thing no, as well. No, because your own imagination would do it. Because they can't create those special effects that's in the mind all the time when you hear it. By late spring 1937, the Federal Theater Project was under intense scrutiny for staging what some felt were too many left-leaning labor plays. In Washington, there were rumors funds would be cut. At the same time, Wells and John Houseman were rehearsing a production of The Cradle Will Rock. The play took place in Steeltown, USA. It followed the efforts of Larry Foreman to unionize the town's workers. This was to combat the wicked Mr. Mister, who controlled Steeltown's factory, press, church, and social organizations. Less than three weeks before the play was to open on June 23rd, the WPA shut down the project. Wells went to Washington to argue his case. He failed. Next, he threatened to open the play himself. The government's response was severe. A dozen uniformed guards took over the building. They stood at the box office and in the alley outside the dressing rooms to ensure no government property was touched. But John Houseman discovered an out. As U.S. citizens, the actors were free to enter as audience members and then rise from their seats to speak their lines, so long as they weren't on stage. The Cradle Will Rock played in the aisles. The next day, everyone was fired, but it was front-page news. The Mercury Theater on the air, was that the... which started in 38, I guess. Was that the first place you developed what the, it was known, I suppose, uh, as the first-person singular, the... Mm -hmm. The idea of telling the stories in the I developed it in a show that I did, mm -hmm. which was my first job as a writer-director for radio, which was to do Les Miserables on a series of 13 weeks. And I developed the narration, first-person narration thing for that. So long as these problems are not solved, so long as ignorance and poverty remain on Earth, these words cannot be useless. That summer, NBC featured a series of Shakespeare dramas with John Barrymore, while CBS aired Shakespeare adaptations featuring Humphrey Bogart and Leslie Howard. To battle for listeners, Mutual scheduled a seven-week take on Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. They hired Orson Welles to write, direct, and star in the production. These words set forth the soul and spirit of one of the world's great literary masterpieces, Les Miserables. Out of the depths of his pity for suffering mankind, Victor Hugo drew a compelling story, one that will live so long as bewildered humanity shall continue to grope toward the light. Tonight, WOR and the Mutual Network bring you the first of seven broadcasts based on this great novel. Each episode will depict some vital development in the epic of Jean Valjean. Orson Welles, author, director, and actor, has assembled a notable cast and offers an interpretation created specifically for radio presentation. Mr. Wells will play the role of Jean Valjean. And those sections of the book itself, which in running narrative bind together the dramatic episode, will also be read by him. Les Miserables begins. Part one. The episode which is called The Bishop. Les Miserables debuted on Friday, July 23, 1937 at 10 p.m. over WOR in New York. The production also marked the radio debut of the Mercury Theater troupe. Martin Gable was Javert, 
Alice Frost Fontaine, Virginia Nicholson the adult Cosette, and it also featured soon-to-be radio mainstays like Ray Collins, Everett Sloan, Betty Gard, Hiram Sherman, Frank Reddick, Richard Widmark, and Wells' good friend Agnes Moorhead. Oh, we're back. Yes. When did you first lay eyes on Master Orson Welles? Well, many, many years ago, I used to spend my holidays with my aunt, who was quite an affluent gal, and lived at the Waldorf Astoria, the old Waldorf. And one time, there was a little boy with a who came in with a gentleman who wore a Stetson hat and and had little white trousers on and blazer and so forth, and he was explaining about a concert to two old dowagers. And I I was just fascinated with this little boy. And I said to my aunt, listen to his vocabulary. Did you ever hear such vocabulary in your life? I was awestruck with this youngster. Well, anyway, during the time that I was there, we went into the drugstore and I was having a chocolate soda, and he sat beside me. I said, I hear you went to the concert the other day. And he said, yes, I wanted to hear more about this. And we talked and talked. Well, all right. Years pass. Everything. I get here to New York. And uh, every once in a while, in meeting Orson, and we work together, of course, in radio, I would think, it seems to me that I've seen you before. Somewhere I've seen you. And then it would pass. Mm -hmm. Well, we were out on the set at Citizen King. And they had just done a story about it in the Saturday Evening Post. And he said, have you seen this? And he tossed the magazine over to me. And I opened it, and there was a picture of the little boy. And I said to him, Orson, did you ever spend your holidays in New York City? And he said, yes. I said, where did you stay? At the Waldorf Astoria. And I said, I told him the story, and he said, well, to think, Aggie, that I knew you when I was seven years old. <laughs> so every time you ask Orson, you know, how yeah. long he's known me, he says, well, I've known him since I was seven years old. He used to hang out together when he was <laughs> seven. Right. That's well. funny. He, he always talks about his life. Sometimes he says that it's as if he lived an adult's life as a child. He told me once off, off camera that he consciously decided to avoid the whole teenage part of his life. He just left that out. He just became an adult. Well, I for the teenage that. years, because he did not want to go through teenage Well, I can believe that. And to, I mean, to make that decision, be able to bring it off, <laughs> it's, it's, no, it's not easy. We have a, a message for you right there. An hour before sundown, on the evening of a day in the beginning of October, 1815... A man, traveling on foot, was seen entering the little town of D. Nobody knew him. He looked ragged and mean. He must have come far that day, for he looked weary. The traveler went first to the mayor's office with his passport, and then turned his steps toward the inn. A man who wants food and a bed. One moment, monsieur. Good evening. Is dinner ready? Monsieur, I'm sorry. I cannot receive you. Are you afraid I won't pay you? I have money. I'll pay in advance. I have no room. Well, then, put me in the stable. I'll pay you. I'm sorry. Well, the attic or a corner of the kitchen. I must have lodging. We'll see after dinner. I can't give you dinner. But I'm hungry. 
I've been walking since sunrise. Twelve leagues. I'm hungry. Get out. What do you mean? You heard me. Get out. But I... I don't understand. Monsieur, I suspected something when I saw you go into the mayor's office. So I sent my boy across to find out. Monsieur, shall I tell you your name? So you know. The traveler looked at the innkeeper, bowed his head, picked up his knapsack and went off down the street. If he had turned, he would have seen the innkeeper in his doorway, pointing him out as he went to the guests of the inn and to the passers-by. Night came on. It had begun to rain. He passed the prison. Mr. Turnkey! Mr. Turnkey! Well, what is it? Mr. Turnkey, your pardon. Will you let me stay here tonight? This is a jail, not a tavern. Get yourself arrested. The traveler did not know the streets. He walked at random. He came to the prefecture and then to the seminary. As he passed the cathedral square, he shook his fist at the church. Then he stopped at a stone bench in the bishop's street and lay down there, hoping for sleep. Who was this man? He was a criminal, and he had paid for his crime. He was an ex-convict. He was tried 19 years before, in 1796. My name is Jean Valjean. Prisoner, you are accused of burglary. Have you nothing to say? Yes, Excellency. I was hungry. It was not our concern, prisoner. Proven fact of your guilt is not altered by the circumstances of your stomach. <laughs> Excellency, I was very hungry. My name is Jean Valjean, Excellency. I come from Brie. My father and mother are both dead, and my sister's husband is dead too, so she lives with me at Favreau. She and her little ones. They are hungry too. Excellency, I'm a pruner at Favreau, and in the pruning season I earn 18 sous a day. And that's all. It's very hard, Excellency. It's a very hard winter. There's no work, and there's no bread. No bread at all. Just no bread, Excellency. None. And I can't find any work. And they're all hungry, Excellency. More hungry than me, much. The seven little ones. And no bread in the house. <clears throat> Prisoner, you were apprehended by police officers in the possession of stolen property. This court has reviewed the charge. And here finds proven finally against the prisoner the crime for which he's on trial. Namely, the burglary of one loaf of bread. Excellency, what does that mean? It means, prisoner, you're a thief. The court finds you guilty. I didn't know I was a thief. Jean Valjean, you are sentenced to five years in the galleys. The galleys. Five years at the oar of a prison ship. The terms of the code were explicit. 
five years in torment. On the 22nd of April, 1797, a great chain was riveted, and Jean Valjean was a part of this chain. He was no longer Jean Valjean. He was 24,601. What had become of the sister? What became of the seven children? Who cared about that? What becomes of the leaves of the young tree when it sawed at the trunk? And all this time, Jean Valjean talked little, and he never laughed. When he left the galleys, he had not shed a tear for 19 years. 19 long years. For near the end of his fourth year in the prison ship, Jean Valjean escaped. On the evening of the second day, he was retaken. Number 24601 for attempted escape. The prisoner's sentence extended three years. Three years, which made eight. The sixth year. 24599. Here. 24601. The series had begun solely on the East Coast, but audience reaction induced mutual officials to give it full coast-to-coast coverage. It cemented Wells as someone who could write, produce, direct, and act for radio. Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not so classic story from the old-time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcasts from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. Now, I started with W.O.R. in February 1922, about the time when uh, Bambergers received the license to broadcast. And this license was issued at that time by the Department of Commerce. We went to Washington in the morning prepared an application for a wireless telephone license. We submitted it to the clerk. The clerk filled out a a license, and we came back in the afternoon with a license. We bought an old DeForest transmitter, promptly put it on the air, and on February the 22nd, 1922, was the inauguration date of WOR. And we endeavored to make this 
February 22, 1922, because the numerals all came out 2, 22, 22. But interestingly, the schedule that we prepared at the time, we had a half hour broadcasting in the morning from 10 to 10.30. We had a half hour broadcasting in the afternoon from 2 to 2.30. And then we were also on the air between 6 and 7 o'clock. The voice you just heard was former WOR chief engineer Jack Popoli. The station went online on February 22, 1922. In 1934, WOR became one of the flagship stations of the Mutual Broadcasting System. The next March, Popoli was chiefly responsible for the creation of radio's first directional antenna, just as WOR increased its power to 50,000 watts. In December of 1936, Don Lee's West Coast chain of networks joined Mutual, giving it coast-to-coast -coast access. But in the fall of 1937, the Mutual Broadcasting System had no top 50 rated shows. 74% of the U.S. population now had a radio set. Sunday evening's most heard shows belonged to Edgar Bergen, who pulled a 32.1, and Jack Benny, who pulled a 29.5. Both ran on NBC Red. Overall, NBC's Red Network had 26 of the nation's top 50 shows, while CBS had 19, and NBC's Blue Network had 5. WOR Sunday afternoon programming had concerts, sports, and news bulletins. Their schedule was ripe for a new melodrama. How did the shadow originate? Was it a, was no, it a show know. before you? Part? No, I was the original Lamont Kratz, as far as I know, but yeah. uh, I, I wouldn't but want But you to... didn't write that. Oh, no, my God. I didn't even know how they came out. Mm -hmm. I didn't rehearse them, you know. I didn't have dress rehearsals. I didn't know how I'd get out of the well ever when I was thrown in. Yeah. And you never had anything to do with that marvelous opening speech. Well, I Who said knows, it. I said you, that, you said that, that uh, yeah, you know, uh, evil lurks in the hearts of men. And the laugh was your laugh. Yes, but I had it. Reverbed? No, I don't know. Oh, my goodness. I just did it. And all the children in the world did it, you know, in those well, days. Well, I did kid, it. Yeah. But I don't yeah. think I heard you originally. I was it. You just don't know. I was the Montgrats. In the 40s, too? Well, they kept playing oh, when they were records, you see. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure I was. Well, that was my favorite radio show. Yeah. People keep talking about it. I hear on television, people keep talking, making jokes about Lamont Cranston. They yeah, still remember that they name. remember it. <laughs> the shadow. And they don't know I was it. I keep wanting to say, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> Were there other Lamont Cranston? Yes. To play the part of uh, Lamont Cranston, 
the uh, whole of radio was scoured, I suppose you might say, to find an actor who would be perfect in the part. And of course, they found the actor who was perfect in the part because they went to Orson Welles, who by that time had quite a reputation and had also achieved great fame on Broadway already because he had become perhaps the youngest, most successful producer in the history of Broadway. So here was a young man whose name was on everybody's lips, and Blue Cole was smart enough to approach him with the idea of playing Lamont Cranston in this new version of The Shadow. In the fall of 1937, Orson Welles was busy readying for a Mercury Theatre Broadway production of Julius Caesar. The agency Ruth Roth and Ryan approached Welles about the possibility of starring in a weekly radio series. His signing was announced in the New York Times on August 29, 1937. Wells' contract allowed him to miss rehearsals and readings. He was paid $75 per week, or roughly $1,500 today, for one half hour of weekly work. Orson was very, very busy at that time, and it seemed almost impossible for him to take on such an assignment, but uh, great concessions were made so that he would be able to take it on. Among the concessions, well, perhaps the biggest, of course, was that he would not have to attend rehearsal, that uh, the program would be prepared and almost completed, except for his appearance, and when the moment came that they would be ready for him, they were prepared to send for him at the theater where he would be rehearsing his own company, the Mercury Theater, and he would come down in a chauffeur-driven limousine or a taxicab to the studio where we were working. We were at the RCA studio on 24th Street between uh, 3rd Avenue and Lexington Avenue in New York, and Orson was working at the Princess Theater with the, his Mercury group. The Princess Theater was on 39th Street and Broadway. So it wasn't too big a jump for Orson, but he was able to make it. He would hop into his taxi cab or limo, as I said, appear at our studio in about five minutes, walk in, pick up a script, go to the microphone, and start to perform the show. The show was recorded, of course, and that's why we were able to do it in that fashion. On Sunday, September 26th at 5.30 p.m., the new version of The Shadow debuted. The program's announcer was Ken Roberts. Opposite Wells as Margot Lane was Agnes Moorhead, along with many of the Mercury Theatre players. It meant nothing to Orson, that first series. Uh, what happened was the Mercury Theatre wanted, uh, they all wanted jobs on Sunday, because they were not playing on Sunday, and they all decided to get in radio, and they decided if they could take over a radio show, it would be great. And the only show that happened to come up that was open was The Shadow. So they took it. And they had it for two seasons. The Shadow was Lamont Cranston, a wealthy man about town. He had the ability to cloak himself with invisibility and to read minds. They were tools of mesmer, learned through years of study in the Orient and India. Walter Gibson's involvement in the radio series was minimal. Clark Andrews directed the first few broadcasts, with Martin Gable becoming de facto director thereafter.
Bill Sweets was no longer doing the program in this form. It was now being directed by Clark Andrews. And there was one lovely moment when Orson walked into the studio after being summoned, and we were all ready to go to work. He picked up his script, went to the microphone, and suddenly the script fell out of his hands and spread all over the studio floor. Well, there was consternation in the control room. There was fear on the faces of the musicians. Everybody was terribly upset. Suddenly, Orson merely smiled, reached into his pocket, and took out another script. The whole thing had been planned to frighten the director. On the October 24, 1937 episode of The Shadow, called The Temple Bells of Nibon, Lamont meets an Indian woman and drug smuggler named Sadi Bel-Ada. She knows the Shadow's true identity. She's the niece of the man who trained Lamont, and capable of using the same powers. presents The Shadow, the man of mystery who strikes terror in the very hearts of sharpsters, lawbreakers, and criminals. Today, the Temple Bells of Nibon. Friends, if you want to be sure that the fuel you get to heat your home this winter is safe, healthy, and economical fuel, then by all means, buy blue coal, the finest of Pennsylvania hard coal. Remember, this superior quality anthracite has been colored a harmless blue at the mines so that you can recognize it at a glance. So take the guesswork out of your fuel buying. Get America's finest anthracite. Ask for blue coal by name. Order a supply tomorrow. The bell, Shadow. The bells of Niva, they will reveal you. Your third mistake, Sadi, and your last. <laughs> no, it is your mistake and your last. This is the end of your career as the shadow. Margot, we'll make this a large evening. A couple of hours at the Club Caliph. Does that intrigue you? Oh, lovely, but not too late. I have an appointment at 10 in the morning at the Women's Club. They're trying to get some action on this terrible narcotic situation. Oh, yes, I read about that. Oh, the stuff's being peddled all over town. They found school children using it, society women. Why, it's already caused a half dozen suicides. Yes, I know. It's terrible stuff. Oh, it needs the shadow to get at the bottom of it. Yes, I know, dear, but for tonight, I, I do enjoy just being myself. Lamont Cranston, dilettante. Let's be the shadow only in real emergencies. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they tell me there's a lovely Indian dancer at this new club, Caliph. Indian dancer? Mm-hmm. You know, there's the place just there. Club Caliph, driver. Yes, sir. Lamont, you are going to do something about it. You've started already. Perhaps. Well, here we are. All right, driver. 
There you are. Thank you, sir. Oh, that looked like young Jerry Gleason just going in. Yes? I was that young man's father. I'd spank him and keep him home occasionally. Spoiled son of a wealthy sire. Mm. Here, let me have your coat. I'll check it with mine. Good evening, Jerry. Oh, oh hello, Miss Lane. Your father and sister well? I haven't seen them lately. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm sorry, but I can't wait right now. I've got to see someone, and it's important. I'm sorry. Uh, but, Jerry... Hello. What ails young Gleason? I don't know. He seems awfully upset about something. He doesn't look well either. Pale and shaky. Mm, you're right, he doesn't. Something curious about that boy. Well, let's go in. <laughs> Uh, may I show you to a table, sir? Yeah, take this table by the dance floor, thank you. Oh, there's someone getting up to speak. We seem to be just in time for the main attraction. Apparently. Ladies and gentlemen, we take pleasure in presenting that fascinating and beautiful dancer of the Far East, Sadi Bel Ada. For our first number tonight, she will give you the dance of the cobra. Zadi Bel Ada. She lovely. Yes. Real thing, too. Real Hindu. Hmm. It's odd, you know. Goodness. Look, she's taking a snake out of that wicker basket. A live cobra. Oh, heaven. You know, the cobra is connected with the old Indian mysticism, the most ancient of magic. See how she quiets the snake, makes it sway to the motion of her hands. Mm. It's a form of mesmerism. We've never improved on that with all our modern psychology. I hope its fangs have been removed. Well, they undoubtedly have. Oh, this is the one they call Sadi Belada. Jerry Gleason with that strange look in his eyes. An epidemic of narcotic smuggling. Sadi Belada. Oh, how graceful she is. <laughs> she keeps looking over here, Lamont. Yeah, it's coming this way. Well. Souvenir for the beautiful lady, Sad. Oh, Oh, a bracelet. Thank you. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, fair lady. Ah, you know the tongue of Mother India, sir. Only enough to make a small prayer. Only enough for that, Sadi Bel Ada. It is good sometimes to know a small prayer. Hmm, just in case of an emergency? Yes. You are very wise, sir. In case you should meet someone who could destroy you, sir. I see. Cela. Just what did she mean by that? I don't know exactly. Funny sort of thing. She seems to know something about me. I'm trying to recall where I've seen that face. <laughs> by the door. Why, it's young Jerry Gleason. She handed him something. Good Lord. He's going out with her. What's the matter now? It just struck me, Margot. That boy's face. The color of his skin. You mean drunk? Yes. The poppy of India. Oh, but not Jerry Gleason. Oh, that'd be too awful. And our own friend Claire Gleason, his aunt, who's tried so hard to steer him straight since his mother died, it would just about kill her. Come, Margot. We must do something. We're more. going to. I did come here tonight with a vague idea that this Indian dancer might have some connection with the thing. With her veiled threats and Jerry's interest in her, 
I'm pretty sure now. What are you going to do? I think the shadow will pay a call on Sadi Belada in her dressing room. I think the shadow can strike back. Can anyone overhear us here in your dressing room? Oh, no. What do you want, Alexis? A message from the captain. What then? Tomorrow is the day. The police are getting closer. We sail tomorrow night at eight. I am not afraid of the police. But there is somebody else I am not sure about. You took care of Jerry Gleason? I gave him his medicine and sent him home. But you bring him tomorrow night? Do not fear, Alexis. Jerry will be with me when we sail. <laughs> I have a way to let him know. Good. Oh, the air blows from that window. Close it, Alexis. Oh, too bad we have to terminate. The grand success of Sadi Bel Adam. The club caliph? Yes. But as the Americans say, business is business, yes. <laughs> and we still have a small business with the rich papa of Jerry Gleason. <laughs> no doubt the richest part of our business, sweet Sadi. <laughs> the rich man will pay well. <laughs> <laughs> Who laughs? Where are you? Speak. I am here. In the shadow. But I'm afraid you can't see me. Speak. And say who you are. Have you never heard of the shadow? Oh, the shadow? So it is you. Have I not somewhere in the past seen your face and known your name? I think so. Uh, did you enjoy yourself tonight? I warn you, Sadi Bellada. Leave the Gleason boy alone. The boy to whom you give the evil drug. I have no fear of you, Shadow Side. I hold a greater power. I hold the power of the temple bells of Niban. Huh? You command the temple bells of Nabon, do you? Yes. Either you lie or you desecrate a great gift. Put your strength against mine, White Ifandi, and you will see how I desecrate that gift. I can cast your little spells aside and make them nothing. I can kill you. Kill me? The shadow, Sadi? Yes. If you dare to come to me again, will you come? Who could refuse such an invitation? Especially when made by so charming a lady as yourself. Yes, I will come. And be sure you don't mistake my voice when I do come. Sadi Bellada. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.
The cast featured Ray Collins as Commissioner Weston, with Carl Frank as Jerry Gleason and Everett Sloan playing bit parts. Jeanette Nolan, then just 25, played Sadi Bellada. About Macbeth. Lady well, Macbeth. Orson came in to that wonderful company of March of Time. We had a Welsh shacked, and he was going to play a Welshman. And of course, that glorious voice, Paul Stewart, who was an actor, as you all know from pictures, but he was always on the air before that. He was on the March of Time on many other shows. He heard Orson and said that he introduced that voice to the company of the March of Time. And when Orson came in, he was such an overwhelming presence because of his youth. Maybe he was 19 about that time. And he was so gaunt and hungry-looking. And uh, (laughs) it was a rough time. I don't mean that to be in any way comical, because a lot of people were not eating regularly in the theater. (laughs) And it was all very obvious in this eloquent performer who gripped us all. The minute he opened his mouth, it was thrilling, absolutely thrilling. The voice and the performance was something never to be forgotten. You suppose Orson was ever out of work? I mean, yes, he was he start, on work. And then this st- was the first was he? work he had had. He was doing, I forget if Ted was with him at that time, I think this was perhaps before Shoemaker's Holiday that he came on March of Time. And things were very, very spare for him. Well, what is it, Sergeant? Uh, excuse me, Commissioner. Old man Gleason is outside and insists he's got to see you. Gleason? You mean Andrew Gleason? Sure, the big Wall Street banker, friend of the mayor. Shall I let him come in? Or... All this lame deficiency where it doesn't do any good. I want to see you, Commissioner. All right, Mr. Gleason. What the devil is this town coming to? Well, if you'll tell me what you're getting at. My I... boy is what I'm getting at. He's lying home there with the worst case of delirium cremens I ever saw. Spent the night sopping up liquor in these rotten honky-tonks. Mr. Gleason, if you think the police department's going around playing wet nurse to all the spoiled kids in this town, is this what you came to see me about, Mr. Gleason? It certainly is. Well, I happen to have more important things on my mind right now. Then you better get this on your mind. Because if you don't, I'll see to it that there's somebody here who does. And I can do it. Good day to you. Well, seems like this was a busy day, sir. What with uh, drunken college boys and millionaires. This is another of those, uh, Commissioner Weston speaking. <laughs> Why, you, you... Don't lose your patience, Commissioner. The shadow has information that may help you. Young Jerry Gleason is becoming a drug addict. What? Yes. A victim of this flood of drugs being peddled on our streets. It might cost you your job. Are you interested, Commissioner? (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, while we're waiting for the shadow to return, I want to relay a bit of information I'm sure homeowners here in the New England states will find particularly interesting. When buying your winter supply of fuel, bear this in mind. Anthracite coal is unequaled for home use. It is not a flashy fuel that burns furiously for a little while, then dies down completely. 
On the contrary, folks, anthracite burns slowly, steadily, evenly, all day long, and so enables you to maintain an even, helpful room temperature. That's why anthracite is called the solid fuel for solid comfort. And friends, remember this. Furnaces, cook stoves, and space heaters in this section of the country were especially designed to burn anthracite. So, insist on anthracite, but get the best. Order Blue Coal. It's America's finest. Blue Coal is mined by the Glen Alden Company, the world's largest producers of Pennsylvania anthracite. To guarantee you the greatest heating satisfaction at the lowest cost, Blue Coal is laboratory tested for purity and uniformity of size. So you see, friends, there's no need to take chances on unknown fuels. Order Blue Coal today. You will find the name of your nearest Blue Coal dealer listed in the where to buy it section of your classified telephone directory under the name Blue Coal. strike, and then the spell will be broken. They're gone. But how, Lamont? Here we sit in your apartment listening to weird temple bells. Where did they come from? How did you do it? Not too difficult, Margot, dear. For those who've learned its secret, its secret based on the phenomenon of telepathy combined with the old science of the yoga... The same magic which gives voice to a shadow. It's a very awe-inspiring demonstration. If there should be someone who could command the temple bells of Naban, the shadow would cease to be a shadow. You mean... You mean they could see... Yes. At the last stroke of the bell, I would be only what I am. Lamont Cranston. My magic invisibility, so to speak, dispelled by this greater power. And, and you think there is someone with this power? I'm not sure. Years ago, in India, a yogi priest, keeper of the Temple of the Cobras at Delhi, taught me the ancient mysteries. He taught me the mesmeric trick that the underworld calls invisibility. There was a small girl, his niece, who used to sit and listen, staring up at us with her round, dark eyes. She was very clever. Clever. I've often wondered what became of her. The Cobras? You don't mean the Indian doctor at the club camp? I'm not sure, Margot. I'm not sure. Oh, but this worries me, Lamont. Aren't you going into dangers too big for you? Don't worry about me, Margot. Worry about the boy and all other poor, miserable wretches in the toils of this awful drug traffic. Is young Beeson safe? Yes, his father made him go to bed. They thought he'd been drinking too much. Well, guess it's time I got busy. Have you found out anything else? One or two things. In Sadi Delada's dressing room, 
I found a note signed by Captain Marlin of the freighter Albora Castle. I think there's some connection there. I'm going to find out. First, though, I'm going to the zoo. The zoo? Yes. Yes, I want to borrow a decorative little reptile from my friend the curator. He's usually very obliging. Who opened that door? Look. Hanging from the doorknob. A snake. Don't touch it. It's all right. It's a dead one. There's a note with it. So, she's not bluffing. She does know who I am. Oh, Lamont, I'm, I'm frightened for you. What does it say? It says, dead cobras are better playthings than live ones. Was I mistaken? Then it's other Berada. Oh, Lamont, Margot, I... it's a challenge. But the bells, the bells of Niban. Oh, I'm afraid the shadow this time will get beyond his death. We shall see, Margot. We shall see who is stronger. Sadi and the bells of Laban. Or the shadow and the snake. I'll show them. They think they can keep me a prisoner in my own house. Putting me to bed as if I were some half-grown kid. What? What's that? Jerry. You hear me? Is it you, Sadi? Yes. My voice in your thoughts. Listen, Jerry. Come to me at the dock. Where we met before. Your medicine is waiting. Yes. Yes. Go aboard the ship I told you about. The Elbora Castle. You and I, Jerry. Yes. Yes. I am waiting, Jerry. But they've locked me in. Go through the window, Jerry. Um, no. Yes, Sadi. The window. Rosaria was the program's organist. Orson Welles was entirely different uh, from the character he is today. He was young, very thin, very good looking, and minus ego, minus weight and ego. He was really a lot of fun. I, I, he was fun in those days and very generous, but he was a real clown. He was an actor every, every inch of, uh, of being an actor, every minute of being an actor. For instance, when we would have the break, you know, maybe a five or ten minutes break out on the hour, why, and as everybody else would be uh, resting, not he, he would out, be out clowning. Whatever was the picture of that day, that was what he was putting on an act. And I remember the first time, a Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs had just opened at Radio City. And he got a broom, he did the witch, he did every part, and he had us just howling. Really, in a way, it was nice because everybody was so relaxed from laughing at him because he could really put on each character. And then you go right back into the script, and you were very relaxed and really did a really good job. It just broke the tension. But I would say he was a riot, and at that at the time, he put on a play on Broadway, too, you know. He was a very generous guy. 
uh, uh, he, he gave several of us tickets to, to go to the show. And uh, he, he was really very, very lovely, while Agnes Moorhead was very aloof. She was very, very aloof. And uh, the cast, as a rule, were very wonderful. Margot Lane, stand by for orders. Jerry Gleason has escaped from his house. But I have followed him to the waterfront, and I know where he's going. Get word to Commissioner Weston. Time is short. I accept Sadi's challenge. Send harbor police to the freighter Albore Castle, which lies in the harbor just off Bay Ridge Shore, ready to sail. Hurry, Margot. Here in this cabin, Cerebell. Hey, little. Why do you tremble so, Alessio? I wish we were far at sea, on our way to Rio. Oh, be patient. There are some notes was delivered to Papa Gita. Yes. What was that? But there is nothing. Oh, it's you, Captain. Yes. We are leaving, Captain. Yes, we're getting underway now. We've got the boys stowed safely below, below decks. And the rest of the medicine? Oh, we got rid of that, what was left of it. A nice clean-up for all hands, not counting this Gleason job. That'll net us another 100,000, or nothing. Oh, we're fixed whichever way the dice roll. And after that, we live like kings, without a care, yes? Not even a conscience to bother you. What? Sadie, he has come. I was afraid. Who said that? I did, Captain. So you're the one with your trick ghost talking magic, eh? I'll make a shadow out of you soon enough. Not that way, Captain. No? Here, lock that door, Alexis. It is locked, Captain Mullin. But but the portholes. No one can get through those. Not even a shadow. <laughs> Save your laugh, whoever you are. We've got you. You're in this cabin somewhere. And this ship is outward bound. Laugh that all. I think you may have made three mistakes, Captain. One too many. Yes. Yes, Captain. But I do not make mistakes, Sad. That remains to be seen, Sadi Bellada. Then you will see. And me the wicker basket, Alex. Hey, what do you want to do? Yes, Sadi. I call the temple bells of Niban, Captain. The shadow has the power to blind your eyes. A trick he learned in India from a yogi who was my uncle. But I have a better trick. When the last bell sounds while the sacred cobra dances, you will see the shadow only as a man. Be ready to shoot, Captain. I'm ready. And now, my cobra... To dance with the bells of Niban. I wouldn't open that basket if I were you, Sadi Bellada. You watch my pretty cobra, Sad. He may find you even before the captain's bullet. You will die just as quickly. Dead cobras are better playthings than live ones. Bismillahi Rahmani Rahim. 
Make your small prayer, child. And now, my pretty one, begin to dance. Be careful, Sunny Bell. The cobra moves toward you. My own pretty cobra. He knows me. You hear the bell's shadow? The temple bells of Niban? I hear them. When the last bell strikes, we shall see our prisoner. And I am waiting for that minute. But Sadi, the cobra! Look out! He's going to strike! Alexis! Quick! Drop the mask over Alexis! Kill it! The shadow warned you, Sadi Pelada. You take credit for this too, do you? No. Sadi should have known it was not her cobra in the wicker basket. It was mine. She's dead. What's that? Who is it? Captain Allen, the police, the border. Where? No, please, Captain Mullen, you do not shoot. Stand back here. Drop that gun. I'll take him. Put the bracelets on both of them, Sergeant. Right. Huh. Dope smugglers, kidnappers, and from the looks, murderers. <laughs> this time, the police were too smart for you. Oh, decidedly. Huh? Who's that? Thanks for coming, Commissioner. You were very helpful. <laughs> and now, before today's adventure with the shadow comes to a close, John Barclay, Blue Coal's own heating expert, is here tonight to give us another of his practical talks on automatic heating. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Barclay. Good evening, friends. Last week, we discussed the importance of uniformly heated homes in avoiding cold. I told you how home temperatures could be kept uniform and automatically controlled with a blue coal heat regulator. I explained that the cost was only $18.95 plus a small installation charge. Now for a word about the convenience of this blue coal heat regulator. With one of these automatic regulators in your home, it is no longer necessary for you to adjust dampers by hand. The regulator eliminates need for frequent attention to the furnace. What do you have to do, Mr. Barclay? You simply tend to your furnace once in the morning and once at night. Just think of that, friends. You can enjoy the comfort and convenience of an evenly heated home, and yet you can come and go all day long without a thought or worry about the fire. Is it any wonder I'm so enthusiastic about the blue coal heat regulator? And too, although it costs only $18.95... It does about everything that the elaborate and much more expensive equipment does that many of your friends have. So, folks, why not get to your blue coal dealer tomorrow and ask him more about this blue coal heat regulator? At the same time, if you have any heating problems, discuss them with your blue coal dealer, too. He is the best-informed heating expert in your community. With the assistance of his John Barclay trained serviceman, he will be able to save you money and help make your home more comfortable this winter than ever before. I thank you. 
story you have just heard is copyrighted by The Shadow Magazine. The characters in this story are entirely fictitious. Any similarity to persons living or dead is purely coincidental. <laughs> the weed of crime bears bitter fruit. Crime does not pay. The shadow knows. <laughs> extra! Extra! Hear all about it! Next week, same time, same station, the shadow's latest adventure! Extra! You were able to do so many things with the organ specifically. I suppose it was a very versatile instrument for radio. Well, the electric organ was very versatile in this in this way that it could be musical one time and then could actually be uh, terrifying another time. And that was very important in creating the mood. And half the time they brought in music that they had just a lead line. The harmonies may not be in it. So you had to be very quickly in a limited time because generally one hour you had Mm -hmm. And out of the hour was the 15 minutes you were on the air. That left you 45 minutes in which had to be rehearsal time and dress. And you really had to go fast. Terror on the Air is an auditory escape into a different world. It's a podcast frozen in time and space where anything can happen. Be intrigued. I'm ready to confess to the crime of murder. Be in suspense. What is that sound? Be entertained. Go ahead, suck on that straw, you. Be moved to tears. No! Be transported back in time. Terror on the air. Tune in on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, keep your volume turned up for terror. Oh, yes. For great days. Great I had day. intended to bring a, a little magical illusion with me, and I put it in the wrong jacket. No magic tonight? So no magic tonight, and I also told myself that I would do what Mrs. Temple used to tell Shirley before every take, and I find I'm not doing it. Do you know what she used to say? No. This is really true. Just as they put that slate on, you know, take number four, whatever right. it is, Littlest Rebel. She'd say, sparkle, Shirley. <laughs> sparkle. sparkle, Shirley. <laughs> so that's what I told myself behind the curtain. Sparkle, Orson. <laughs> <laughs> Smile now. Let's see some of that. 
I had a show. I was the voice of cornstarch. Oh, you're putting me on now. I kid you not. And it was one of my first really good jobs because it was five days a week, 75 bucks a time. All I had to come in was read a poem while the singing strings of somebody or other played, and I'd read this thing. And I had to write a little thing about the poem before I would read it. It was a 15-minute spot for the housewife at noon. And I had been up about three nights without being to sleep for overwork, as you may imagine. Came in one day, and it was a poem they picked for me by Robert Browning, and I couldn't understand what it was about. And I didn't know what to say about it, and I remembered a line from a play that I'd been in, The Barretts of Wimpole Street with Cornell, when she says to Browning, who was a character in the play, what does this poem mean? And he says, kind of a funny line that he really said in life, when this was written, only God and Robert Browning know what it meant, now only God does. So I thought, I'll say this, the ladies will enjoy it, so on singing strings. And all the sponsors, and the smaller a show was, the more sponsors would be in a, in a, of course. In a room, you know, <laughs> were gathered, and I said, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, this poem puts me in mind of what the author said originally, that when this was written, only Rob and Grab it breathing. <laughs> <laughs> when Grot was written, only Grobbit Ridding. <laughs> Music continued. When Grob and Ribbit. <laughs> when God was written, only Brob and Vit and Gritty. <laughs> and then I saw all of these faces, purple and black, staring at me. And I just put down the script, walked out of the studio, and never saw them again. <laughs> never saw them. <laughs> <laughs> The September 29, 1937 issue of Variety said that melodramatic and at times astonishing crime fighter, The Shadow, returns to the ether to probably find a rather sizable slice of listeners waiting for him. In this series, the sponsor will benefit from having a program aimed right at the vulnerability of the audience it seeks. Orson Welles, a young and good actor still riding a crest of recognition, one with the Federal Theater Project, does the title role. The shadow is a bit fantastic, but as with these things, the stunt stands muster with the show's listeners and appreciably colors the proceedings. Well done, both as to script acting and producing. Both Billboard and Radio Daily also gave the program positive reviews. A blizzard of fan mail came into WOR. Shadow fan clubs sprang up across the country. Wells would occasionally appear at promotions, donning a black cape, hat, and mask. Oddly enough, because Wells was constantly rushing from one part of New York to the other. Frank Reddick, who previously voiced the Shadow as narrator, was kept on to record the Shadow's opening signature, giving Wells a few more minutes to get into the studio. I think I should tell you about some of the actors who appeared on the Shadow in those years. There were such wonderful names as Everett Sloan, Frank Reddick, whom I mentioned before, who went on from being the narrator on the original show, to being one of Orson's company. There was Paul Stewart, there was Martin Gable, Arlene Francis, Alice Frost, who had been playing the lead in Big Sister, another successful radio serial, and many, many others.
I had a political column, and I also was the editor of a, of a magazine. So I was very busy in that area for a while. But didn't so you long ago, everybody's forgotten. Running for office, and didn't Roosevelt encourage you to do it? Yes, he wanted me to, but I think he said he wanted me to to make me happy. On Halloween 1937, Benito Mussolini removed Italy's foreign minister to France due to strained relations between the two countries over Italy's participation in the Spanish Civil War. Adolf Hitler gave the Order of the German Eagle to the Japanese emperor's son, while Chinese forces abandoned its defense of the Sihang warehouse. Sunday was Halloween, and at 5.30 p.m. Eastern, the shadow took to the air over Mutual with a story called The Three Ghosts. presents The Shadow, the man of mystery who strikes terror in the very souls of sharpsters, lawbreakers, and criminals. Friends, there's no longer any need for you to rely on guesswork when it comes to buying fuel. Now you can get the best fuel for home use, and know it at a glance, too. For blue coal, the finest of Pennsylvania hard coals, is colored a harmless blue at the mines for your protection so that you can identify it instantly. To be sure that the fuel you buy is a safe, healthy, economical fuel, get America's finest anthracite. Ask for blue coal by name. Order your supply tomorrow. Standard, I tell you. Always at nine o'clock it comes. But if I hear that horrible thing again, I, I'll go crazy. Oh, this awful house. But it's quiet, my dear. Way out in the country like this, I can install my laboratory here as soon as I get around to it. As for these strange sounds, well, haunted houses have always fascinated me. I've always wanted to meet a ghost. Shake hands with him. Invite him to tea. Stop talking like that. It's serious. Oh, I've tried to stand it for your sake, Arthur. But I don't know how much longer. My heart isn't strong and I... Hear it? But that's only the wind, isn't it? No. It always starts like that. You know it does. Don't move. Listen. Arthur, it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. Uh, Ghost, eh? Well, we'll see. I'll meet him this time. I'll meet him halfway, too. Stop! Stop! Come. We'll both meet him. Give me your hand. No! Carolyn. Carolyn, it stopped. Can't you hear me? Goodness me. Has the shock killed her? No, her heart still beats. She's only fainted again. Hmm? Just her husband. Mm. 
turn the next corner, Lamont. It's that big house dead on the hill. May I ask, Margot, the reason for this late call on Carolyn Sneed? Oh, I'd like to know what's the matter with the poor woman. I got an awful shock when I saw her in town last week. She looks positively haggard. I never saw such a change come over a person. Well, married life may not agree with her. She was a spinster for close to 40 years, wasn't she? I know, but I think she was foolish. Carolyn has nearly a million dollars in her own name. She didn't have to marry. Yes, but right now I'm not the shadow. Remember, I'm just your patient chauffeur, darling. Lamont Cranston, in need of a rest from my famous mystery man role. That last adventure took a lot out of me, you know. Well, a marriage problem is hardly... Seriously, though. Nobody knows anything about this man she married. He came into town six months ago, met Carolyn in some accidental manner at the county fair, and proceeded to rush her off her feet. I've met him only once, but I don't like his looks. Hmm. Something sinister, I gather. Hence the shadow idea. Well, who is he, anyway? Professor Arthur Sneed, I believe he calls himself. He has a small office in town where he's supposed to be working on inventions or something. Well, here we are. Hmm. You're usually pretty level-headed, Margot, but don't let your aversion for this man we're seeing be too apparent. Dreary place, isn't it? I don't see any bell. I guess you're supposed to use the knocker. Here he comes. Well, who is... Oh, it's you, Miss Lane. Yes. Good evening, Professor Sneed. I hope we aren't too late. Too late? Too late for what? Why, I phoned Carolyn that we'd drop in just to say hello. Uh, well, well, she didn't tell me. Uh, Carolyn isn't feeling well at the moment. I I'm sorry. Good night. Oh, but please, I only want to see her for a moment. That is, unless it's something really serious. Well, it isn't as serious as she pretends to think it is, but, uh... Well, come in. Thank you. Uh, this is my friend, Lamont Cranston. Uh, come in. I'm very happy to see Mr. Cranston. I've heard a lot about him. How do you do? You say Carolyn is ill? She didn't mention it, it when I... It came on suddenly. She's been in a nervous condition lately, but it's mostly imaginary. I made her go to bed. Well, would it be all right if I saw I it? I suppose you? so. Go on up if you like. Well, thanks. I'll only be a few minutes, Lamont. Uh, what seems to be the trouble with your wife, Professor Sneed? Oh, she's run down, I guess. Frightfully nervous. She has some absurd notion that this place is, uh, well, haunted. Haunted? It's only the wind, of course, and the creaking of an old house. Mm. Ghosts. She keeps talking about ghosts. And I can't persuade her that there are no such things. Of course, old houses have a habit of getting themselves haunted, Professor. As for myself, I'm not so sure there aren't such things as ghosts. But surely, Mr. Cranston... Oh, not the conventional sort, perhaps, but... I mean people's spirits. Souls, whatever you want to call them. Haunting the places where they've been unhappy. Very interesting, I'm sure. But a lot of tosh. I put no stock in it. No? Just noticing that rather rare book on the table, Professor. Neuroses of Death. What? If you're interested in that, I'm sure you must be interested in ghosts. I understand its morbid analysis of the factors of violent death are quite 
Interesting. What do you know about it? Oh, I read all sorts of things, Professor. Professor Smith. Oh, uh, yes, Miss Lane? Carolyn wants her sedative. Oh, yes, yes. I, I'll go up and give it to her. Did you find her comfortable, Miss Lane? Well, I, I think Carolyn is seriously ill. Yes, but more nerves than anything. Uh, excuse me uh, just a moment, won't you? Lamont, there's something wrong here. I was afraid there was. I, I, I don't know what it is, but it's something terrible. Well, what's the matter with Carolyn? Well, she hardly recognized me, and she talks like one in a trance. As though she were in the grip of some deadly fear. When I suggested sending the doctor over, she shook her head. But I'm going to just the same. I can't help feeling it's, it's that man, her husband. Yes, he isn't very pleasant, is he? His skin has an odd pallor. You see it on men who spent some time in prison. There are many little traits of his behavior that interest me as a psychologist. A remarkable man. But you don't know. I don't know. But I think we'll investigate this more or less formally, Margot. I'll visit the professor tomorrow at his office in town. If there are ghosts involved here, perhaps the shadow can bring them to light. Actor and writer Sidney Sloan remembered working with Wells. As everybody knows, Orson never rehearsed the show. He had a standby man who would appear at the time of the rehearsal, and uh, they would mark the script and read the lines just for timing. And uh, when uh, Wells would walk in at the opening, uh, just about the time we were, the show was on the air, and he'd walk in and he'd hand him the script and he'd go into who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men in that business. And uh, he would go through it. Well, he got to the middle break this one time, and then they took it away for the commercial in another studio. And he said, hey, this is a hell of a script. How does it end? Here he's playing the show. Hello? Yes, Carolyn. Well, don't worry, my dear. I'll leave the office here at five, and I'll be home before six. Yes. Yes, I understand. Goodbye, dear. Well, who is it? Is that you, Miss White? Who's opening that door? Don't get up, Professor. I'll close it after me. What? I thought I might find you in. Who said that? Who are you? Your conscience speaking, Professor. Or have you a conscience? I'll show you what I've got. <laughs> Don't excite yourself. I'm only a voice. A voice they call... Professor, have you ever heard of the shadow? The shadow? Yes. You seem to have heard of me. What do you want? I've come to warn you, Sneed. Warn me? Warn me about what? I know what you're doing. What? And I know how it's going to end. The end is death. Death? I have something here I'll toss in your lap. There. Do you hear it? Why, you... Get out of here, I tell you. See it? Look. It's half of a playing card. The ace of spades. 
when you find the other half, that will be the end. Get out, then. Leave me alone. All right, Sneed, I'll go, but don't forget. The shadow knows. <laughs> Trying to frighten me with his tricks. Oh, coming back, are you? Oh, it's you, Miss White. There are two gentlemen here to see you, Professor Sneed. Two gentlemen? Well, I'm not expecting... I guess you may remember us, Professor Sneed. Spike. Your old friend Spike Collins and Mr. Wilson here. Yes, uh, yes, of course, <laughs> Uh, please take those circulars on your desk, Miss White, and mail them at the post office right away. Yes, sir. Lock that door, right? Okay. Now, what are you staring at, Sneed? We ain't ghosts. Uh, I thought you two were doing a stretch at Leavenworth. Yeah, we were. We framed a getaway. And now we come to see an old pal. Well, now, listen, Spike. I'd help you if I could, Nuts. but... We've been watching you, and we know your game. We ain't got no time to stall. This old dame you're married has got plenty of... I don't know what you're driving at. Well, you'll know if we squawk about that dame you married out in Idaho that croaked without anybody knowing what was the matter with her. Cards on the table, Steve. Is this one signed our money over to you? Yes. She fixed her will in my favor. Well, what are you doing to get it? Well, she has a weak heart. And... I know. Playing ghost and scaring her to death, eh? That's too slow, Sneed. I got a better skin. We break into the house. Stage your burglary, see? In a scuffle, the old dame gets shot. Dead. It's quick. No, no. You can't do that. No. You'll see. Spike Collins. Spike Collins. Wake up. Spike Collins. What? Who's that? Just a voice, Collins. The voice of your own thoughts coming to warn you. No one but you can hear me. Your friend's need is going to double-cross you tonight. Need is going to double-cross you. It's your move. Be there to prevent him. Be there in time. Six o'clock. Be there. The shadow will return in just a few moments. While we're waiting, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you about the ever-increasing popularity of Blue Coal, America's finest anthracite. Blue Coal is winning new friends every day among New England housewives, they not only like the superior heat of blue coal, but they find that it simplifies housekeeping. This is because blue coal is so clean. It burns completely and does not send any particles of unburned carbon through the house to be deposited on furniture or woodwork. The drudgery of daily cleaning is reduced to a minimum with this clean fuel. Blue coal is the largest single brand of solid fuel prepared especially for home use. Each car is laboratory tested at the mines for purity and size before shipment. Blue coal is Pennsylvania's finest anthracite. So that you can personally identify this excellent fuel, it is actually colored blue at the mines. Order it by name. You will find the name of your nearest blue coal dealer listed in the where to buy it section of your classified telephone directory under the name Blue Coal. 
Are you comfortable in that chair, Carolyn? Yes, thank you, Margaret, dear. And I do appreciate your coming out here and staying oh, with me. I'm glad to do it. But it's six o'clock. Your husband ought to be coming home pretty soon, shouldn't he? He phoned just before you got here and said he was starting. He seemed very agitated. Oh, he's a strange, unaccountable man sometimes. There are things about him I don't seem to understand. Yes, I know, dear. He has the car, I suppose? Yes, he's driving. He's probably on his way now. I've got to think. I've got to think of something. I know. We leave town. You're driving rather recklessly, Sneed. You again. I'm going to haunt you. Try to forget that I'm here in the rear seat. If it annoys you. No, don't look under the seat. If I could only see you, get my hands on you, I'd show you how much it annoys me. <laughs> Shut up. I'm the voice of your conscience, Sneed. Perhaps you have a conscience. After all... I could choke that voice down your throat without any trouble to my conscience. If you only had the power of second sight, you could see me. That's an invaluable gift, Need, being able to see things that other men can't. Some people call it mental telepathy, some by other names. Remember, I can see the pictures you make in your mind. I told you about that. You can warn all you like. That's not evidence. Not in court. A lot of wild guesses that don't mean anything. Well, doesn't it frighten you a little, Sneed? I simply will. You not to see me. And you don't. Careful. There's a truck coming down the road. Better sound your horn. Good Lord, the fool's taking up the whole road. It's going to hit you. Look out! It's gone. There wasn't any truck there. No. I willed you to see it. And you saw it. No truck at all. Just hypnotism. Gosh, I... I'm having hallucinations. But that's the way to dispel hallucinations. Drive straight through them. Be careful. We're near your house. And this old mill road is tricky. What about it? Look, Sneed. There's a man in the road ahead of you. There is, eh? Really? Why, it looks like one of your two pals that called on you today. I knew he would be here, Sneed. Really? You're going to hit him if you don't watch out. More of your hallucinations. You think that I'll believe you again, don't you? Well, I won't. Look out. I, I hit him. This time, it was no hallucination, Sneed. He was in front of you. <laughs> the minute you have a gangster who has to perform a certain function in a melodrama, you're, you're, you're obliged to try and find something about him that doesn't make him identical with every other gangster and every other melodrama. Just as simple as that. Morning papers! Morning papers! It's comic by Cullen's found dead last night on the old mill road. Fight Cullen's wanted 
fire the police? I'm dead. Here, son. I'll take one. Hey, Arthur. What's it all about, Mom? Found dead on Old Mill Road. But that's out of the snake's place. Yes, yes, I believe it is. Notorious criminal struck by automobile and killed. He was certainly struck by an automobile. I wonder if Sneed knew anything about it. He acted very strange when he got home last night. Strange? What way? Well, he was pale and shaky, and he hardly seemed to know I was there. He told Carolyn that he'd had a message from out of town and they'd have to pack and leave. Well, did he say when? Well, they thought they could get their trunks and things ready by this afternoon sometime. You're not going to let Carolyn go with him, Lamont? Not if I can help it. Let's see. A little after nine, I imagine Commissioner Weston is rather startled by the morning's news. I think I'll have a word with Commissioner Weston. Sending Carlin's body into the morgue. Uh, you went out there this morning and checked all details, Captain? Yes, sir, I did. And whoever hit him certainly smashed him up good. His face was all out of shape and couldn't recognize him. But we found these in his pocket. Now, let's see. A letter from his girl out west, looks like. Insurance policy. Uh, library card of Leavenworth Penitentiary. And this ring, sir, that Collins always wore. With a figure eight on it. Oh, yes. Well, it's a good job done, whoever did it. Uh, tag that stuff and file it. Yes, sir. Let me know when the wagon gets here. Yes, sir. Police Department, Commissioner Weston speaking. Good morning, Commissioner. This is your good friend, the Shadow. Oh, yeah? Well, what the blazes do you want? To be of a little assistance, as usual. Yes, I see him. I'm getting tired of this rigmarole, though heaven knows things happen when you phone. And what's the assistance today? Why didn't you investigate the ghosts that haunt Sneed House, Commissioner, on the old mill road? Well, you missed up on that one, Mr. Shadow. I don't put much stock in ghosts. But we went out there and checked up. Searched the house. There's no evidence. No. Go again today, Commissioner. And this time... I think you'll get your evidence. <laughs> Is that the last trunk, Arthur? Yes. The expressman won't be here until four. Another hour yet. Why don't you go up and lie down a while, Caroline, hmm? Yes, I will. I'll try to sleep a little now that it's daylight. You uh, told the milkman we wanted to pay him. He's coming back before we leave. Good. Well, that must be him now at the back door. <gasps> Get back. Get back. What's the matter, Snead? Think you're seeing a ghost? Stop. Don't come near me. That's snap out of it, will you? This is me, Spike Collins. You? Alive? It wasn't me you hit with your car last night on that back road. Well, I guess you wish it had been, huh? Who, who, who was it then? It was Rat Wilson. Fool got half pickled trying to get up his nerve for the job. Staggered on the road before I could stop him and wham. It was all over. Wilson, eh? It's 
So there was my chance, see? Him and me, about the same size, his face and hands all smashed flat. I put my stuff in his pockets, my ring on what was left of his finger. There I was, dead. <laughs> and all that time you was giving me the double cross. Well, maybe I am a ghost. But I can still deal with you, Sneed. Who is it, Arthur? Uh, just a minute, Carolyn. Now listen, Spike. There's only one way to see this thing through. You and I have got to stick together. The shadow is after us both. We've got to get out together. Away from this, this yeah. shadow. Don't kid me anymore about the shadow. You see this cat? I'm here on business and I'm going through with it. Put the old lady out of her misery. Good Lord. What's the matter? There. On the table. Nothing but a torn playing card. Yes, of spades. Or half of it. You've got to stop it, Spike. You've got to stop it. What's the matter? Who's this man? Uh, Carolyn. This, uh, this is a friend of mine. A friend? Sure, a friend. But I don't understand. The pistol, Yeah, that's my way of doing business, lady. Your husband does it different. He's been scaring you to death, ain't he? Making you think the place was haunted. You know how he always does it? Stop it, Spike. He used to be an electrician, see? He rigs up a sort of electric sound box with a remote control switch. He usually puts the switch over here by the door. Yeah, there it is. What's it all about, Arthur? The ace of spades. The end. Death. When he turns the switch, you hear the ghost dance. All you have to do is turn this knob. That's the way it works, lady. But I hear it. Arthur, I hear it. Turn that thing off, you idiot. What? I, I haven't turned it on. You haven't. And, and what's making those sounds? <laughs> I am. Um... What is that? It's him. He's come. A shadow. I am coming up these cellar stairs. I will enter and stand beside you. Where is he? Stand back or I'll shoot. When I enter, I will touch one of you on the shoulder. Stop him. Stop him. And that one will die. It's the cops. Come here, Steve. It's a plant. You call in the cops. No, don't shoot, Spike. The jig is up. You can have the bullet I was going to give your wife, you double-crossing skunk. that got killed over here last night. Come clean, Collins. Whoever it was, I didn't do it. <laughs> Who's that? Where are you? Don't be alarmed. I am here behind you in the shadow. Oh. So you're here, Shadow, eh? Maybe you know who got killed here last night. The man killed last night, Commissioner, is a ghost. Oh, yeah? There are now two ghosts 
in this little adventure. Mr. Collins will probably make the third. You really should believe in ghosts now, Commissioner. And in shadows. <laughs> And now, before today's adventure with the shadow comes to a close, John Barkley, Blue Coal's own heating expert, is here to give us another of his practical talks on automatic heating. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Barkley. Good evening, friends. In former Sunday night talks of mine, I've shown you the importance of having the temperature of the home properly controlled with the Blue Coal automatic heat regulator. That is, in terms of health and convenience. Now, tonight, I'm going to give a third important reason for automatic heating economy. Most societies will tell you that the proper degree of heat in the home is 70 degrees. Naturally, you can't by hand keep your fire from giving off more than 70 degrees of heat, but the blue coal automatic heat regulator can and does. But here's how that saves you actual fuel dollars. Heating engineers have discovered that for every degree you raise the temperature above the desired 70 degrees, your fuel goes up in cost one and one-half percent. So you see, friends, by automatically shutting off that heat, that extra wasteful, unhealthy heat, heat regulator automatically saves on fuel cost. Why not investigate this blue coal heat regulator further? Ask your local blue coal dealer to give you a demonstration. The cost is only $18.95 plus a small charge for installation. You'll find it well worth every cent of that and more. Moreover, if you have any heating problems, discuss these also with your blue coal dealer. He is the best informed heating authority in your community, and assisted by his John Barkley trained serviceman, can, I'm sure, help you save money and have a more comfortable home this winter. This service is free. It costs you nothing. Thank you. The Shadow Adventure you have just heard is copyrighted by The Shadow Magazine. The characters in this story are entirely fictitious. Any similarity to persons living or dead is purely coincidental. <laughs> the weed of crime bears bitter fruit. Crime does not pay. The shadow knows. <laughs>
Say, I saw your friend recently, Orson Welles. Oh, yes. You were in, yes. you were in Magnuson Ambersons and Citizen Kane. We yes. talked about that once on the, on the show. Well, I worked with Orson 17 years. In the Mercury Theater. Yes. He, is, he was mm -hmm. marvelous because he never played the obvious. He never directed, mm -hmm. obviously. He always directed in some strange or black way that you thought, well, that isn't mm -hmm. right at all. But if you put your career in his hands, he loved to mold you the way he wanted. And mm -hmm. it was always much better than you could do yourself. Oh, and, of course, I love him dearly because he was very, very great to me. He was very kind to me. And, and he had great confidence in everything that I would do. Would if you there like was to work with him again? If you oh, could. adore to. Yeah. Wells opened in Julius Caesar on November 11, 1937. He also made time to perform in guest appearances elsewhere on radio with Tallulah Bankhead and Cedric Hardwick. Thursday, November 25th was Thanksgiving Day. The New York Daily News headline spoke of Consolidated Edison finally getting on board with FDR's New Deal program. November 28th's episode of The Shadow was called The Circle of Death. It's a story about a madman who plants bombs across the city, creating a reign of terror in his wake. <laughs> the Shadow knows. <laughs> Blue Cold presents The Shadow, the mystery man who strikes terror in the very hearts of shopsters, lawbreakers, and criminals. Ladies and gentlemen, when you hear The Shadow's blood-curdling laugh, you can be sure that exciting entertainment will follow. And here's something else that you can be sure of. When you buy Blue Cold, you're getting the finest of Pennsylvania hard coal. The harmless blue coloring that identifies Blue Coal is your guarantee of clean, even, safe, dependable heat all winter long. So don't take chances. Insist on Blue Coal. Ask for it by name. Phone your order to your nearest Blue Coal dealer tomorrow. And be sure to hold on for John Barclay's important message at the end of this program. The plot murder announced for today has been postponed. Today, the circle of death. Oh, Jack, what a delightful show. What a wonderful way to start our honeymoon. Darling, when it comes to shows and girls, I'm a swell picker. Now watch me pick a nightclub. Oh, taxi. Hey, taxi. Darling, I think you're wonderful. I've never had such a marvelous time in my life. Hop in, honey. <laughs> Things are pretty quiet around the theater district tonight, Bill. Yeah, pretty thin crowd. I don't blame folks for staying away. After those three bombings and 15 people being blown to pieces, I wouldn't be here myself if it wasn't the commissioner's orders. Same here. Boy, has this town got the jitters. Commissioner Weston's hopping around like a cat on a hot stove. I hear the Midtown Association is going to ask for his resignation if he don't catch the nut that's scattering bombs around here like confetti on New Year's Eve. The guy that's pulling these jobs sure must have it in for a lot of people. Yeah, he's a real screwball, if you ask me. 
Look at the way he's always sending warnings to the newspapers before he blows another batch of pedestrians to Hades. Yeah, and have you noticed? He always ends his notes by saying, I hate crowds. Yeah. Well, this is the time that crazy goof warned he'd set off another blast. Maybe his, his watch is slow. Things are going to pop if he pulls another job and kills any more people. Well, maybe... Maybe all the cops have him scared off. Maybe. Maybe not. Bill, look at that car. Blown to smithereens. Senseless and insane, Marco. Crimes like this always are. Turn on the radio. It's time for a news bulletin. The switch on the dashboard. All right, the inefficiency of the police department. Tonight at Midtown Hall, a meeting of businessmen of the entertainment world and property owners is in progress. Police Commissioner Weston has been asked to defend his department and produce results or resign. Mm, that's enough, Marco. Washington, D.C. Now listen carefully. Yes, Lamar. I want you to go to that protest meeting right over there at Midtown Hall. Commissioner Weston is speaking, and the crowd is pretty certain to heckle his explanation of the failure of his department to catch this fiend. I'm sure of now, it. Now, here's what I want you to do. Keep quiet and watch your chance. Then I want you to cry out that Shadow could solve this crime without half trying. Aren't you flattering yourself? Never mind that, Margot. I have a very definite reason for doing this. A lot depends on your getting the crowd to take up your suggestion. I'll do my best, Lamont. But where are you going? I won't be far away. Hand me that leather case on the floor. Here you are. Am I permitted enough womanly curiosity to ask what's in it? <laughs> Just a little wire-tapping device. Telephone? No. No, Commissioner Weston will be talking over the loudspeaker system in Midtown Hall. Don't be surprised if the shadow interrupts his speech. Now, remember, Margot, cry out at the psychological moment. Hundreds of lives depend on it. Yes, he's tipped us off occasionally, but it may have been to get rid of rivals. 
We have no assurance he isn't a criminal himself. What of us? A thief can catch a thief. I don't run my department that way. You're not running it at all. That's a matter of opinion. Well, I was asked here to tell you what we've been doing. You seem to think my department works with the shadow. We don't. We never have. And as for the shadow and you reporters can spread it all over the front pages, I challenge him to uncover one single scrap of evidence that my men have overlooked. I challenge the shadow to find this maniac. I am the shadow. I accept that challenge. Commissioner Wesson, I am working on the case. Gentlemen of the press, it will not be necessary for you to print the commissioner's challenge, but you can print this challenge to the arch fiend behind this reign of terror. Print this, gentlemen. The shadow will trap the mass killer if he dares walk through the central arcade during the rush hour between five and six tomorrow night. Remember, the central arcade between five and six tomorrow night. I dare him to come to walk through the central arcade. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a paper. Give me a paper. That's two cents, mister. Uh, here's your two cents. Oh, thanks. Here's the paper. No, no, no. Not that one on top. People, crowds have seen it. Well, so what? They're all the same. No, no, no. Give me that one underneath. Okay. The customer's always right. Hey, the mass murderer challenged by the shadow. That's your extra paper. <laughs> the Central Arcade tomorrow. Mm, so he's daring me, the shadow fellow. He knows I hate crowds. Crowds and people pushing and getting in my way. Voices talking and shouting. I hate them. I hate them. But I'll show them. I'll show the shadow fella, too. I'll fool all of them. I'll accept his challenge. I'll be there at the Central Arcade. And the shadow fella will know I was there. <laughs> the whole world will know. <laughs> After I've gone... have been carried out, Commissioner Weston. Good. There'd better not be any slip-ups. 200 patrolmen are stationed in the neighborhood of the Central Arcade. 50 picked men of the plainclothes and bomb squad will be in the crowd. If there is a crowd... There'll be a mob after all the publicity. If I could get my hands on the shadow, I'd wring his neck for this. Uh, what time is it? A little after four, sir. We'd better get down there pretty soon. Yes, sir. Shall I take that call, sir? No. I've been waiting for this. And if it's who I think it is... Hello. Hello. <laughs> listen to me, Shadow. No, Commissioner Weston. You listen to me. I'm listening. Quick, Connors, trace this call. Yes, sir. Don't bother, Commissioner. You can't trace this call. I tapped a line. Just as I tapped the Midtown loudspeaker system last night. So that's how you pulled that crazy stunt. 
You're a fool, Shadow. Don't you realize you've endangered the lives of thousands of people? Nothing will happen if you do not interfere. I don't take my orders from you, Shadow. You're not running the police department. I'm not giving orders. But I need your help. Just do one thing for me, and you and not the Shadow will get the credit for the capture of the mass killer. Oh, yes? Well, what do you want? Just keep the crowd moving through the narrow arcade. Just keep them moving. Keep them moving. Everything depends on that. What are you trying to do, Shadow? To find a needle in a haystack. A man in a million. You haven't a chance. The maniac won't come. You overlook the fact that a dare is a powerful psychological magnet that no egotistical crazed mind can resist. Just keep that crowd moving, Commissioner. Keep them moving. <laughs> when you start figuring ways and means to save money for Christmas gifts, fuel is probably the last thing that comes to mind. You see, audiences, in the real sense of the word, are disappearing. There are almost none left. It's an endangered species. Everybody's on? No. You see, this isn't an audience here. No. False pretense? No, no. This is wonderful, lovely people, and we're so grateful for you. But you're not an audience. You got in free. An audience? And not only did you get in free, but you know, as does every studio audience, that you are not here to do anything except be a member of the cast and to help us look good. <laughs> okay, very much. Seriously. Have you ever seen, have you ever seen a television show where the audience booed and hissed or refused to applaud? We're always it's always a big hit on television, isn't it? Because the people who come to the show know that they're part of the cast and have to help us not to look ridiculous. Our real audience is two or three people in a living room scattered all over the place, but that isn't a real audience. An audience is a big, many-headed beast crouching out there in the darkness, waiting to eat us up or love us or whatever. And it must be either seduced or tamed or raped or whatever. And it must be dealt with. How because anybody who deals with a real audience, as I have, my goodness, think how long I've been in show business. I've been hissed and booed. I've had things thrown at me. Until you've had that experience, you don't understand what dealing with an audience is. Shadow fellow, 
I'll kill me a lot more people at 11 o'clock tonight. Oh, I was afraid something had happened something to him. Something has. I found the maniac. Thank heavens. Have you notified the police? Margot, this man is a fiend. If I notified the police and they bungle things, he might kill hundreds of people. This is a job that the shadow must handle alone. But Lamont, he's dangerous. You might fail. He might kill you. The shadow won't fail, Margot. But if he should, it's far better that one die than hundreds. Oh, Lamont, please. There must be a safer way. Perhaps, there. Margot, but this is the only sure way to end the career of this mass killer. <sighs> Goodbye, my dear. Lamont. Oh, Lamont. Look lively, Connors. Here comes the headquarters car. Yeah, it's Commissioner Weston's car. He's plenty worried about this maniac threatening to kill another batch of people at 11 tonight. Well, you'll sure have to go out of the theater area to kill him. They won't let anybody in the district here without a police permit. Wait a minute. Here comes a guy. Hey, you! You! Who, who me? Yeah, you. Where do you think you're going? Me? I, I'm going to work. That's where I'm going. You got a permit? I got a badge. See? <laughs> Says I'm a night watchman. I got to go to work. What do you watch? Where do you work? <laughs> I watch things in the ground. Down there. Down where? Down under the street. Down under the planks. Oh, I get it, Bill. He's a night watchman down on the new subway they're building. Oh. Yes, yes, that's it. <laughs> I go down them steps. Every night I go down them steps and watch. Well, why did you say so? Get on with you. Get to your watching. Thank you. <laughs> Joe Tonetti is waiting for me so he can go home. Every night at 10.30, I take from him the job of watching. <laughs> now, that's a job I wouldn't want any part of. Me neither. I'll pound my feet on the Joey, Joey Tonetti, Joey, you can go home now. I'm here to watch. Hey, what's the matter? You're half a big speakerback fella. You're five minutes late. I want to go home. Here's the keys to everything now. You watch out. Don't you go to sleep? <laughs> the police don't want to let me come to work, but I show them the badge. <laughs> you can go home now, Joey. I'll, I'll watch everything. Okay. See you in the morning. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> people. So many people always pushing. Pushing me. But I'll show them. I'll fix them good. I'll kill them. That shadow fellow, I'll show him too. <laughs> now, now, now I, I'm alone. <laughs> All alone. Not quite, Anton Spivak. You are not quite alone. I am with you. Huh? Do you hear my voice, Anton? Sure, sure. I, I always hear voices in the dark, on the street, and here under the street where I watch every night. Yes, Anton. But you've never heard my voice before, have you? Well, maybe. I, I, I don't think so. What's different about your voice? It's the voice of the shadow. Oh, <laughs> you're a pretty smart voice. <laughs> How'd you find me? 
Where's that shadow fellow the newspapers talk about? I am more than just a voice, Anton Spivak. I am the shadow. You, you're the shadow? Yes. Where are you hiding? I am hiding under the cloak of invisibility. You cannot see me because I have clouded your mind. So you cannot see that which is here. How did you get down here in this subway excavation? I followed you down the steps. How did you know where to find me? I picked you out of the crowd in the central arcade. (laughs) How did you know I was the one? Your eyes showed me. I knew then how much you hate crowds. My, My eyes show you? Yes. You passed close to me as I stood in the shadows. Hmm? The arcade is narrow. You didn't see me. Hmm. No one saw me. But I saw you. How'd you find out my name? I followed you to the place where you live. I found out you work here. In the tunnels. Then then, then you you followed me here from my home tonight? Yes, Anton Spivak. All the way. Mm, Good, good. (laughs) You're a very clever shadow. But but, but you must go now and let me do my work. My work. I I, I ain't got much time. Now now go quick before I get mad. You're plenty smart. (laughs) I'm glad to know you, Mr. Shadow, but but no, 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 you have to go. Yes, I'm smart. But you're smarter. (laughs) You bet. Let me stay. I want to learn. You can teach me things. Then maybe we can work together. You hate people too? Yes. I hate crowds. Let me watch you. And learn. All right. I'll let you watch. What are you going to do? You just watch. What's in this shed? You see? Dynamite. Sticks and sticks of dynamite. Is this what you use to kill people with? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. (laughs) My precious dynamite. They kill the crowds I hate, see? (laughs) Now, look here. Here's a stick of dynamite already fused. There's one, two, three, four, five, and six... Six sticks of dynamite to go with it. <laughs> now you watch. See, Shadow, I, I, I tie them in a bundle. But how do you take that dynamite to the place where you killed all those people? It's a block away. How do you carry it? <laughs> that, that's where I'm smarter than you, Mr. Shadow. Show me. <laughs> I'll show you. <laughs> now, look, look, see, it, it's almost 11 o'clock. Now, here, here. You, you see this little hook? I hook the dynamite to it. Then what, Anton? Wait, wait, you you, you hear that car overhead on the boards? Yes. Well, if, if the light is red, it will stop right over our heads. Now, now, now listen. There, there, you see? The light is red. Now, now, now I take this crowbar. I go up this ladder. Come on, come on, you come with me. Yes, I am still here. Although you cannot see me. Now, now, you watch. I, I pry the end of this plank back, see? And I, I, I hook the dynamite on the brake rods. I strike a match, and, and I light the fuse. 
And, and, when, and when, when, when the light changes, the car takes the dynamite with it. And when the dynamite explodes a block away, I'm still here. While the... Oh, no, 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 no. You, you put out the fuse. You've tricked me. And here is the dynamite. Oh, you took it off the car. It, it's gone without the dynamite. And I promised I'd kill a lot of people tonight. Now I have to wait. Tomorrow the crowds will be still pushing me. Scaring me. You tricked me. That's what you did. You you tricked me. Where are you, Shadow? Shadow. Come here, Shadow. Nice, Shadow. Nice, Shadow. I'm here, Anton Spivak. Yes, yes, I... I hear you. <laughs> nice, Shadow. Come. Come close to me. Put down that dynamite, Anton. No. No, Shadow. I light another match. If you touch that match to the fuse, you'll die, too. But I'll kill you. And I don't care. You wouldn't let me kill people. And I don't want to live. I want to die. I want you to die, too, Shadow. Wait, Anton. Oh, no, no, no. You blow out my match. Yes, I have a plan. Those thousands of people waiting up the street. Yes? You can kill all those people. Wouldn't that be better than just killing the two of us? <laughs> how, how, how? Tell me how. Take your dynamite and come with me. Up the steps. Up. Oh, no, 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 there, there, there's policemen out there, I saw them. But they won't see you any more than you can see me. No, 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 they will see me. Hypnotize them. Huh? Hypnotize them. Look straight at them. Stare at them. And then they won't be able to see you. No, 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 I'm afraid. Think of all those people... Waiting to be killed. Come. Just a few more steps. I am with you. You'll be safe. I'll try. I'll try. <laughs> All those people waiting to be killed. <laughs> I'll try it. But, but don't you leave me, Shadow, or I'll light the fuse. I'm here, Anton Spivak. Look, there are the two policemen. Uh-huh. Just stare at them hard as you pass, mm. and they won't see you. All right, I'll, I'll try, I'll try. Well, it's past seven, Connors. Looks like a false alarm this time. Hey, wait a minute. Here's that night watchman. Hey, what's the matter with him? What's he staring at? Look, look what he's carrying. You can't see me. You can't see me. Dynamite. Grab him. Oh, no, no. Take it away from him. Let me go. Hold it. No, I said no. I no. got him. It's I... a mask killer. No, no, no. Oh, he, he lied. He fooled me. He said you couldn't see me. Oh, no, no. Give me my dynamite. I want to kill all those people. Hold him. No. Here's Commissioner Westall. Go. I got him. We got him. We got the maniac, Chief. Good work. Here, let me look at him. Oh, no, no. no. He, he, he tricked me. He, he said you couldn't see me. Where'd he come from? Up out of the subway excavation, Commissioner. He's a night watchman. No, no. He, he tricked me. The, the shadow tricked me. Oh. 
It was the shadow. Yes, Commissioner Weston. The shadow. I found the killer, but the glory is all yours. <laughs> Before we tell you of the shadow's next exciting adventure, here's John Barkley, Blue Coal's famous heating expert, with an important message I promised you. Tremendously topical. Mr. Barkley. Extremely so. And uh, earlier, that was one of the troubles of the war. We couldn't make him topical then. I had to stop the topical stuff because the things were going on in real life and uh, on a much bigger scale. And in earlier, I had him tied in with things like the League of Nations and things of that sort. And not only that, but we were cut down. This is a thing the jerks can't get through their heads. The reason that I went to whodunit stories was our magazine had taken on the format of a whodunit. So I began going into the, into the whodunit stories during the war. And one guy wrote, oh, Gibson was getting tired. In other words, he thought these stories sounded tired. Well, I think he was getting tired of reading anything except what he wanted to read. I mean, it was one of those things that was silly. I was simply going by what Nanavik and others thought were the, the trends. I thank you. Friends, for your own sake, do as Mr. Barclay suggests. Phone your blue call dealer tomorrow and get full details of this amazing free trial offer. Prove to yourself what thousands of satisfied owners already know that with a blue coal heat regulator, you get more uniform heat, more economical heat than the most expensive oil burner can give you. But don't wait. Phone your blue coal dealer tomorrow. The story you have just heard is copyrighted by The Shadow Magazine. The characters in this story are entirely fictitious. Any similarity to persons living or dead is purely coincidental. Same time, same station. Blue Cold will again present another thrilling adventure of the shadow. Be sure to listen. Your announcer, Arthur Whiteside. Mary, no! God, let go! Let, mm, I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, get away. no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome? 
and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast, Twelve Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. The success of The Shadow was shared by Blue Coal. Billboard reported that 12 months after the premiere, their sales were up nearly 11%. Blue Coal was selling for as much as $2 per ton more than their competitors. In February of 1938, Orson Welles opined that radio's future bigwigs will be college graduates. By then, more than 90 colleges offered courses in radio speech, while radio writing was taught at 57 colleges and 53 colleges were teaching radio acting. Both radio music and radio law were also becoming class offerings. The last episode of The Shadow's Autumn Run aired on March 20, 1938. Although everyone knew who played Lamont, for the first time on air, Orson Welles was given credit for his role. And now, ladies and gentlemen, that interesting message we promised you. The part of Lamont Cranston and The Shadow has been played by one of the most distinguished figures in the theater today, Mr. Orson Welles, famous for his production of Shakespeare in Modern Dress, a director of the Mercury Theater, producer of Broadway hits like Julius Caesar and The Shoemaker's Holiday. Mr. Welles, still a very young man, is making for himself a unique place in the field of dramatic art. We have been indeed fortunate in having Mr. Welles on our shadow programs. Now I know all of you would like to hear a few words from Mr. Welles. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Words can hardly express my great enjoyment in doing this program for you. And now, before I leave you, I want to thank our sponsors, Blue Coal, for giving me the opportunity of doing this show. I want to thank our cast for the wonderful work they've done throughout our entire season. And above all, I want to thank you, our listeners, for your loyalty. We all hope you've enjoyed listening to the shows as much as we have playing them. You know, in the theater, we can see our audience. We're able to tell how well we're received by the applause we get. But unfortunately, we have no way of knowing how much you've enjoyed us over the air. Wait, Orson, may I make a suggestion? I certainly, Agnes Moorhead, or should I say Margot Lane. <laughs> there is a way. If you've enjoyed this program and would like to let Mr. Wells and all of us know about it, simply phone your nearest blue coal dealer and tell him so tomorrow morning. Tell him how much you've enjoyed the adventures of the shadow. A very fine idea, Agnes. And now, ladies and gentlemen... Good night and goodbye. Thank you, Mr. Wells. And let's all take Agnes Moorhead's suggestion and give the cast the volume of applause they deserve. Phone your nearest blue coal dealer tomorrow morning. Tell him how much you've enjoyed the adventures of the shadow and that you'd like the shadow programs to resume again in the fall.
Chronicles was contracted to produce 26 more episodes for a syndicated summer run. They co-starred Margot Stevenson as Margot Lane. Ironically, the character was named for Miss Stevenson, who was originally supposed to play the role that fall. Goodrich Tires would sponsor the summer run, while Blue Cole immediately signed on for another season in the fall. Agnes Moorhead would again play Margot, but Wells would be leaving for CBS that summer and taking the Mercury Theater troupe with him. Austin was ready to go on to bigger things. He was ready to go on from the theater to Hollywood for the production of Citizen Kane. And so we no longer would have Austin, and we were sure the show would go off the air, as I just mentioned. But wonder of wonders, it did not. The program was strong enough to continue with other people in the role of Lamont Cranston. One of the first of them was Bill Johnstone. Nine p.m. B U L O V A Boulevard Watch Time, W A B C New York. The Columbia Network takes pride in presenting Orson Welles in the first production of a unique new summer series by the Mercury Theater on the Air. single year, the first in the life of the Mercury Theater, Orson Welles has come to be the most famous name of our time in American drama. Says Collier's Magazine, 23-year-old Orson Welles threw a bombshell into Broadway. Robert Benchley writes in The New Yorker, the production of the Mercury is, I should say, just about perfect. Time Magazine declares, the brightest moon that has risen over Broadway in years. Welles should feel at home in the sky. For the sky is the only limit which his ambitions recognize. And finally, the United Press remarked, Meteoric rise of Orson Welles' Mercury Theater continues unabated. In late June 1938, Orson Welles was approached by CBS. He was offered a one-hour network sustained time slot on Mondays at 9 p.m. William Paley's concept, a Mercury Theater of the air for a nine-week trial run. Unlike Welles and Houseman's theater productions, which had several weeks of rehearsal, the show would begin in just two on July 11th. Houseman was nervous. He'd never done radio. Wells would direct, narrate, and star. The Mercury Theater troupe would support. Bernard Herman would be the musical director and Davidson Taylor supervisor. Wells called the show first-person singular. A take on Bram Stoker's Dracula was selected for the first episode. Wells and Houseman had total creative control. The premiere set the tone. Good evening. The Mercury Theater faces tonight a challenge and an opportunity for which we are grateful. We will present during the next nine weeks many different kinds of stories. Stories of romance and adventure, biography, mystery, and human emotion. Stories by authors like Robert Louis Stevenson, Emil Zola, Dostoevsky, Edgar Allan Poe, and P.G. Wodehouse. 
In the cast tonight are Martin Gable, the Cassius of our production of Julius Caesar, and George Kouloris, who played Antony in that production and appeared also in our Shoemaker's Holiday and Heartbreak House, and other leading Mercury Theatre players. We're starting off tonight with the best story of its kind ever written. You will find it in every representative library of classic English narratives. It is Bram Stoker's Dracula. The next time I speak to you, I am Dr. Arthur Seward. George Kouloris plays Jonathan Harker, and Martin Gable plays Dr. Van Helsing. It is Dr. Seward who tells the story, and so for the moment, goodbye, ladies and gentlemen. I'll see you in Transylvania. The Mercury Theater on the Air presents Orson Welles as Count Dracula in his own version of Bram Stoker's great novel, Dracula. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Arthur Seward. I'm here tonight to bear witness to the truth of certain events which you may find it hard to believe, but I ask you to believe them. I have here certain documents, telegrams, clippings from the press of the day, memoranda, and letters in various hands. All needless matters have been eliminated so that a history almost at variance with the possibilities of contemporary belief may stand forth as simple fact. I present you first with excerpts from the private journal of Jonathan Harker. I, Jonathan Harker, lawyer's clerk, article to Peter Hawkins, Esquire of Exeter, England, am writing this journal in the hope that if misfortune overtakes me, it may one day come to the eyes of those who love me. I set out from London on the last day of April to visit one of our clients in Eastern Europe. On May the 3rd, I arrived in Budapest and came after nightfall to Klausenburg on the borders of Transylvania. At Bistritz, there was a letter of welcome for me from our client, informing me that his carriage would await me at the Borgo Pass. It was signed, Dracula. Over the next nine weeks, listeners heard adaptations of classics like Treasure Island, The Tale of Two Cities, The 39 Steps, The Man Who Was Thursday, The Affairs of Anatole, and the Count of Monte Cristo, for which Wells simulated the sound of a dungeon by having the actors play their scenes from the floor of the CBS restroom. He placed two dynamic microphones against the bases of the toilet in order to achieve realistic subterranean reverberations. Get on board. Keep up there! sat in the stern sheets with a guard on each side of me in the little boat. There, there. King's business. Lower the chain. The chain that closes the mouth of the port at night is lowered. Soon we were outside the harbor. My first feeling was one of joy at breathing the fine sea air again. Then a sadness as I saw the lights of La Reserve away to the left of me and heard the sound of voices and music coming through the open windows.
After September 5, 1938, CBS renewed the series under a new name, the Mercury Theater of the Air, moving it to Sundays at 8 p.m., opposite NBC's highest-rated show, Edgar Bergen's Chasing Sanborn Hour. It set the stage for a series of events which would forever alter the course of Orson Welles' life. Quiet. You want me to speak now? I'm sorry. Of course, we are deeply shocked and deeply regretful about the results of uh, last night's broadcast. The date of the broadcast was 1939, and it seemed, came rather as a great surprise to us that a story by an H.G. Wells classic fantasy, the original for so many succeeding comic strips and adventure stories and novels about a mythical invasion by monsters from the planet Mars should have had so profound an effect upon radio listeners seemed to us to be clearly in the realm of the fairy tale. Deeply regretful that this is not so. In the fall of 1938, as Orson Welles was launching the Mercury Theater of the Air, radio character actor Bill Johnstone became the shadow. Johnstone held the role until March 21, 1943, when Brett Morrison took over. Morrison had the title role for most of the rest of the radio run. The shadow would air until December 26, 1954. We're going to stop here. I've covered Wells from his birth through Pearl Harbor in episode 79, and from there to the early 50s in episode 104. While we're wrapping up our coverage of The Shadow, we're staying with the mutual broadcasting system in October and getting into the Halloween spirit. This is WOR New York. 7 o'clock by Longines, the world's most honored watch. Product of the Longines Whitnor Watch Company. From New York City, the makers of Clipper Craft Clothes for Men and more than 1,200 leading retail stores from coast to coast present that immortal character created by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the world's most famous detective, Sherlock Holmes, starring John Stanley. I was out of grade school at six. Next time on Breaking Walls, we'll spend Halloween with mutual broadcasting mystery shows of the 1940s. And after three years pre-med, I was the head. The reading material used in today's episode was This is Orson Welles by Peter Bogdanovich with Orson Welles. Citizen Welles by Frank Brady. On the Air by John Dunning. The Shadow. History and Mystery of the Radio Program by Martin Grams Jr. Network Radio Ratings by Jim Ramsberg. Discovering Orson Welles by Jonathan Rosenbaum. WOR The First 60 Years. As well as articles from Billboard, The New York Times, and Variety. On the interview front, Agnes Moorhead spoke to Chuck Shaden. Hear the full chat at speakingofradio.com. 
Rosario and William N. Robeson spoke with Dick Bertel and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Hear these full chats at goldenage-wtic.org. Jeanette Nolan spoke with Spurvac. For more info, go to spurvac.com. Agnes Moorhead and Orson Welles spoke with Dick Cavett. Wells also spoke with Peter Bogdanovich, Johnny Carson, Merv Griffin, and Dinah Shore. Jack Popoli spoke with Westinghouse. And Walter Gibson, Rosario, Ken Roberts, and Sidney Sloan spoke for the 1984 documentary, The Story of the Shadow. Selected music featured in today's episode was Teenage Brain Surgeon by Spike Jones and his orchestra. Breaking Walls episode 132 will keep us with the mutual broadcasting system as we celebrate Halloween by focusing on mutual mystery shows. This episode will be available beginning October 1st, 2022, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. And support this show for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So, until October 1st, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode 131, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much.